Well, it's a joy to be here with you tonight and, and to see, rejoice in what God's doing around uh, the metropolitan area of Detroit. Uh, over, over the years, I, I've met a lot of uh, friends and, and people who are working for uh, the gospel in various parts of, of this area, and I'm glad to, to rejoice in that with them and uh, to be here with you tonight. That, that song we sang has one of my favorite lines of all songs, that last line of the second verse when... When Christ uh, will have the prize for which He died, inheritance of nations. And uh, every time we sing that at our church, I'm just reminded of the call of the gospel to make disciples of all nations. And uh, that, that begins here in our own areas and then extends around the world. And I love that line. It always just kind of, I don't know, does something for me. That, that uh, I mean, all, the whole song is good, but that part of it I love. Um, as Pastor Jacob said, I have... Uh, a wife and three children. My, my youngest is a year old. Turned a year June 25th, so a year and a couple of weeks, a year and two weeks or so. So my oldest is seven, and and uh, they are home tonight uh, playing with one of the kids uh, from our church, and uh, actually with four or five of the kids from our church. Now I think about it, they were all going to the park and trying to get to know some people there at the park tonight. So I'm glad to be here with you. Most of you have probably heard the name Robert Frost, have you? When we think of Frost, we either think of poetry or wintertime. And poetry is probably the better option, although in these hot days, winter seems inviting, doesn't it? 1916, I wrote a poem that most of you have probably heard of, at least in part, uh, part of it called The Road Not Taken. It was a, a poem that Robert Frost wrote about the, the fact that, that the road of life sometimes has forks in it. And uh, when you come to a fork in the road, as Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And uh, then you come to another one and you take the next one. And pretty soon you have a whole life that's built of the forks in the road. The poem goes like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. And then took the other. As just as fair and perhaps having the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood, uh, two, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one last traveled by, and that has made all the difference. There's something about Frost's poem that resonates with most of us, that life is full of choices. And we look back over those choices and realize that anywhere in the past had we taken a different road, we would have been at a different place. And perhaps at times we look back and wonder about the road we didn't take. We look back and wonder, had it been a different choice back then, would we be at a different place? Sometimes that, that, that idea is inviting, isn't it? Uh, you, you wish it was different. And let's face it, not all the times for good reasons. Maybe the frustrations of life have built up. Maybe the, the, the sorrows have built up to a place and you look back and say, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. But the reality is we can't do it differently. Years ago, I, I was um, wrestling with a decision. And I sat at the kitchen table of a wise, experienced pastor. And it was actually just west of here. The first church after I graduated from college in 1992. I actually uh, almost went to a church in, in Dexter, 
out uh, just by Ann Arbor out there. And I spent a week at this pastor's house, and we were talking all week long about things. And, and, and we are talking about a particular decision. And he, and he said to me, he said, part of God's grace is that you never go down the other road to see what you have missed. How wise that was. Beginning of a long period of, of growth in my own life as I became convinced that the road of life is not just about forks. The road of life is about the sovereignty of God and the grace of God that leads us down certain roads for His own purposes. Our personal lives, every day that we live, we are not living in a world full of, of possibilities. We're not w- living in a world full of, of chances. We're living in a world that has been granted to us by the grace of our God. Exodus 13 is the climax of a very traumatic and amazing experience in the life of Israel. When it comes to Exodus 13, we are finishing up 430 years of ancestors who were slaves in Egypt. And then this guy named Moses comes along to deliver them. I imagine the Israelites considered Moses a bit uppity. Kind of like the people who live up north or something, maybe. I don't know. Or the people who live down south or out west. Right? He was, he was uh, you know why? Because he had grown up in Pharaoh's household. He had grown up in, as Pharaoh's own son. To the Israelites, he was, he was one of them, not one of us. The Bible tells us earlier in Exodus about the day that, that Moses began to kind of branch out from his upbringing as Pharaoh's son. And he began to try to reconnect with his fellow Israelites. And, and, and his early attempts to help them really didn't turn out all that well. You know the story how one day he sees uh, an Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting. And he does what every guy would do. He kills the Egyptian, right? And uh, the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he tries to break it up. So, oh yeah, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you did him? And, and I imagine the thought that went through Moses' mind was, I just got busted. I don't know what that sounds like in, in Hebrew or Egyptian, okay? But in English it sounds like, uh-oh, this is not good. And so Moses, being the strong, self-respecting man that he was, took off running. Ran across several hundred miles of desert to land called Midian. And he spends 40 years keeping sheep in the land of Midian. Towards the end of that 40 years, he is keeping sheep in the south part of the Sinai Peninsula. And there God appears to him in a burning bush, except he doesn't know it's God yet. He sees this bush burning that's not going anywhere. There's no ashes. There's no, you know, kind of cinders going up into the air. The bush is just burning. And Moses comes to him and says, I've got to see what this is. The, the burning was probably not strange to him. In the desert, I'm sure he had seen lots of burning bushes. But the fact that the bush was not burning up was what was strange. And as he approaches it, this voice comes out of the, out of the bush, which was probably eerie in itself, a little bit strange, and says, Moses, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. And this begins a conversation between God and Moses where God says, Moses, you're the deliverer. You're going to go back and lead Israel out of slavery. And Moses says, no, I'm not. I can't do this. You got the wrong guy. And, and in Exodus 3 and 4, uh, Moses repeatedly says, God, no, I can't do this. And, and what, is, what is so great about God's way of dealing with Moses is, is, that, is that Moses, God, God does not turn to Moses and say, no, Moses, you're the guy, man, you got this. Moses, look at all your gifts. 
Look at all your abilities. You know what God says to Moses? Moses, look at me. I'm the one doing this. I'm going to take you down there. I'm going to bring them out. I'm doing this. God focuses Moses' attention off of himself and back on God. And so Moses goes back. And, and, and this time, for a time, he was well received. They, they accepted him. And, and there, there were a few signs that helped that out. The guy drops his, his staff on the ground and turns into a snake. And I, that's impressive. That's good. We'll follow you. And, and, and so it was going well. And then Pharaoh goes to Moses. And, and Moses goes to Pharaoh. And, and Moses says to Pharaoh, let, let my people go. And, and Moses, uh, Pharaoh says, no. Um, probably with a little bit of profanity and a bit of mockery. No. We're not letting them go. These are our slaves. And in fact, it's not just that he doesn't let them go. Pharaoh makes the life of the slaves worse. And you know what that causes the slaves to do? They turn against Moses again. Moses, since you got here, since you came back, things are getting worse. Why don't you just leave? But God was up to something. And God and Moses persevered, and nine plagues of judgment came. And in every single plague, the, the Israelites were spared. In every single plague, it fell just on the Egyptians. And, and then the tenth, the final straw, brought a breakthrough. The death of the firstborn was the price of the hardness. The death of the firstborn... And as, as I read this passage in Exodus, when it talks about the death of the firstborn, it's hard for me to comprehend. It's hard for me to understand because I just, I can't, I just can't put any meaning on that. I, I have a firstborn. Most of you do. And, and, and there's nothing that I wouldn't do. But that's, that's the cost of it. That's what's going on here. And, and, and yet to the Israelites, God says, listen, here is the escape. The escape is you need a substitute. And the substitute is a lamb. And, and what you're to do is take a lamb and, and, and kill it. And take the blood and paint it on the door. Now, I, I, I will admit I'm a bit squeamish about death. I don't like death. I, I, I do funerals. Um, I, I in, in, in my years of being pastor, I've done a, a lot of funerals. Um, I've only ever touched one dead person. And that was because my wife told me to. And uh, so I, I listened. We were at her mother's funeral, and we're standing there at the casket the first night of, of the visitation. We're standing, everybody else had left, and just her and I standing there. And she looked at me, and she says, You still never touched a dead body, have you? I said, No. And I knew what was coming. She says, do you want to? I said, no. But if you want me to, she said, go ahead. So I did. I don't like death. I don't like dead animals. Okay? But when it comes to my son or dead lamb, that's an easy choice. I don't like blood, especially not on the walls of the house. But when it comes to my son or blood on the door, that's an easy choice. You see, what Israel needed was a substitute, somebody to stand in the place and receive the judgment of God so that they could be freed from it. And those who had the substitute received the deliverance. 
And on that night, there was a great cry that, that, that came out from all the houses of Egypt as, as, as mothers and fathers cried out in anguish when they found out their firstborn son had died. But then there was a second great cry. The cry of eviction that said, get out of here. <laughs> you guys go. And, and while you're going, take whatever you want. And God enriched His own people with the spoils of the Egyptians. And you can imagine the sight of, of two million, two million, that's a lot of people. The height of Detroit's population was about 1.8 million back in the 50s. Two million Jews hitchhiking, except there was no cars or buses going to pick them up. They were walking. And you can imagine the gold and the silver and everything they picked up from the district just hanging off their camels and their donkeys. Everywhere they could put some, they had a why? Because God made them rich. God said, I'm going to give you everything you want. And by the way, later on in the book of Exodus, you know what that spoil of the Egyptians is used for? That's what God builds this tabernacle out of. All right? but, but we're going to get a little sidetracked here and we better get going or we're going to be here all night. 400 years of brutal slavery, they're delivered. And that night they march out and they head out on this road towards the promised land. The land that God had promised Abraham 600 years ago. God said, Abraham, this is your land and your descendants are going to go be slaves in another land for 400 years and then I'm going to bring them back to this land. And if you can imagine with me a moment the land of Egypt on a map. And, and you can imagine, here's, here's Egypt. And they were in the eastern part of Egypt in the land of Goshen. And there is a straight line from, from the land of Goshen to the promised land of Canaan. And that straight line goes right along that, that little bottom part of the Mediterranean Sea. It's called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. The Egyptians called it the way of Horus. And that was the easiest, most direct route to the promised land. 430 years of slavery. It's a straight shot, right? Are you in Exodus 13? Go with me there to look at verse number 17. I want you to see this because, because here is a road not taken. Now when Pharaoh let the people go, Exodus 13, verse 17, God did not, did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. That way of the land of the Philistines is the road known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea. It would have gone right out of, right out of Egypt, straight across through what is today known as the Gaza Strip. If you follow the news at all, you've heard of the Gaza Strip. It's constantly under attack, under dispute, a lot of stuff going on there. This is the road that would have gone from Egypt straight across underneath the Mediterranean Sea, straight up through the Gaza Strip into the Promised Land. It was the quickest, most direct way, and God said, you guys can't go that way. You know why? Because if you go that way, the people might change their minds when they see war. All along this path, there was probably Egyptian outposts because this was the border. There was probably a Philistine outposts of, of the military. Why? Because, because the Egyptians were trying to defend their land for people coming into it, and the Philistines were trying to defend their land. And God said, if you guys go that way, you're going to see war. And, and, and you're so demoralized right now. You are so discouraged right now. You, you are on edge. And if I expose you to one more danger... You're going to collapse. And God says, I'm not willing to do that to you. And God in His grace and God in His protection of His people said, this is the road not taken. You guys are not going this way. Because there might be war. Now let me ask you something. Was God unable to prevent war? Was God unable to stop the fighting? Couldn't God have simply led His people down that path and prevented the war? 
or given the ability to overcome war. See, God wasn't opposed to war. Just within a matter of about three months, they're going to experience war. Exodus chapter 17. God's intent was not to prevent them from war. So why was this a concern? Why did God do this? And you know what the answer is? We don't actually know everything that went into it. But back in Exodus chapter 3, God said, Moses, here's the sign that I'm with you. I want you to get this, because most of us don't like these kinds of signs. Right? We like signs from God sometimes, or what we think are signs from God. God says to Moses, Moses, here's the sign. A year from now, this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Let me ask you, what was this mountain? What was the mountain they were going to worship God? Where was Moses when he got the message at the burning bush? He was down in the south of the Sinai Peninsula. At a mountain that you and I know most familiarly. How's that? As what? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. You know what? If Israel goes straight across the Via Maris, you know what they miss? Mount Sinai. And God said, here's the sign. You have to go south. Furthermore, as we read the story, we see that God isn't finished with Pharaoh yet. In fact, we're going to see this in just a moment. Uh, you guys know the story, right? So I'm not giving away anything ahead of time. You know what happens. God said, I'm not done with Pharaoh yet. i still got a little mocking to do with Pharaoh. i still got a little shaming to do with Pharaoh. I'm not done with him yet. But God doesn't give those reasons. The reason that God gives for not taking him by the way of the land of the Philistines is the love of a father who says, I know my kids. I know they're weak right now. I know they're tired. And I know if they go that way, they're going to want to come back. They're going to go back to slavery because they're not strong enough to handle it. I love Psalm 103. He knows our frame, that we are but dust. You see, God understands us. And the road not taken was not taken because God knew His people. God knew what would happen to them. And as an act of His grace and His mercy on them, He was watching out for their weakness and their frailty. So that's tremendous implication for what's going to come later. Forty years of wilderness wanderings. They're going to be tempted to grumble. And they're going to give in to it. They're going to be tempted to doubt. And they're going to give in to it. They're going to be tempted to be afraid. And to fear. To turn against God. And you know what? God does not stop any of that. But God stops this. God cares for His people. But he did not leave his people alone in Exodus chapter seventeen, Exodus chapter thirteen. They lead, they go out by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, down towards the south. Verse eighteen. Sons of Israel went up in martial array, and in and I, when you see that word there, martial array, in your New American Standard Bible, we tend to think of armies, right? You, you know, in, in martial array, they're all lined up for war. Except they didn't have any war training; they were slaves. The Egyptians weren't about to let them train for war. They didn't have any any implements of war, swords and shields. They were basically just a ragtag group of people hiking through the desert. But you know what's in front of them? Look at verse number 21. Verse number 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel day by day and by night. 
He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night from before the people. You see, God led them on a different way, but God did not leave them alone. God Himself took them on a different road. He was committed to His people to see them through. But here's where the story takes kind of an interesting turn. And this is what I like about the stories in the Bible because there's so much in these stories of the Bible that, that, that we look at our own lives and we say, man, that sounds familiar. This, this kind of, I can, I can identify with this because here it is. God has kept them from something. But in Exodus chapter 14, He tells them to turn a road, to turn on a different road. And so in verse 2, Moses, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, tell the sons of Israel to turn, to turn, you see that? To turn back. And camp before Pahaharuth. I just like saying that. Pahaharuth. Between Migdal and the sea. And camp in front of Baal Zephon. You know where these places are? Nobody does. These places, we're not sure exactly where they are, but they're somewhere on that border, probably in the area today that we know as the Great Bitter Lakes. Back in this ancient time, most likely this would have been considered part of the Red Sea. You have the Red Sea and the Gulf of of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba that come up. And and up the Gulf of Suez, where the Suez Canal is today, there was an area of land that was was populated uh, with water. It's covered by water. But one of them is called the Great Bitter Lake. And you've got a number of lakes, and that's probably where this is on that northern arm of the, of the Red Sea. God says, turn back. Now, now remember this. They had been, been going eastward towards the Promised Land. God turned them southward toward the Red Sea, and now He turns them back towards Egypt. And where gets to Pharaoh? What do you think Pharaoh thinks? Fortunately, we don't have to wonder what Pharaoh thinks because the Bible tells us. Look down at verse number 5. When Pharaoh... Um, uh, uh, verse number 3, I'm sorry. When Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. These guys don't know where they're going. They went east, then they went south, then they're going back west. These guys are lost. Maybe they're scared of the desert. The wilderness has shut them in. They don't want to cross into the wilderness because they don't know what's out there. And then Pharaoh's mind begins to turn. Hey, why did we let these people go to begin with? This was our slaves. These were our road builders. These were our building builders. Why did we let these people go? And then the light comes on. Hey, let's go after them. And God says, I'm going to bring Pharaoh one more time. I'm not done with Pharaoh. And the reason you guys are going back is because you are the lure. You're the bait that's going to tease Pharaoh out of Egypt one more time. So when the king of Egypt was told that people had fled, verse 5, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart. They said, what have we done? Why did we let him go? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. He took 600 select chariots, 600 the finest chariots, and all of the other chariots of Egypt. I mean, this is a lot of horsepower. This is a lot of soldiers, and Israel has not one soldier. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased out after the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel were going out boldly. They were going out with joy. They were going out with confidence. They were going out with with pleasure. And then then I can imagine somebody near the back kind of looking back a little bit and seeing this cloud of dust kind of rising up. And then word spreads through the whole group of people. Hey, look behind us. Because sure enough, 
the Egyptians were coming. And, and, and where is Israel? Remember where God told him to go? Look back up verse number 1. Go, but go to Pahoroth between Migdal and the sea. And so here is Israel. Verse number 9. The Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his army. They overtook them camping by the sea beside Pahoroth in front of Baal Zephon. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, all the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. Scared to death. Here's the people they just escaped from. And not only did they just escape, they got all the junk. They got all the stuff. And Egypt has all the soldiers, and we got metal pots and and clay jars and gold and all that's good for decorating stuff, not that much good for fighting Pharaoh's army. What are we going to do now? Because the army's on one side and the sea's on the other and they are trapped. And they cried out to the Lord, verse number 10 tells us. But I imagine this cry was not a cry of God, please save us. I imagine this cry was, was probably more like a cry of anger. They cried out in anger. What, what have you done? The reason I say that is verse number 11. Then they said to Moses, they cried out to God and then said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt? You've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Seriously, Moses, didn't, they got cemeteries back there. If we were going to die, we could have saved ourselves all this hiking in the desert. We could have stayed there. They would have let us live. They weren't about to kill us because they wanted us to do work for them. Why have you dealt with us in this way? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Isn't this the word we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. It's kind of strange how time changes our perspective. Remember when you look back at your life and you say, man, things were much better back then. That's what Egypt, that's what Israel's saying. Oh, we should. We were. We were better off back there. No, you weren't. You were slaves. You worked from sunup to sundown, and more. You were run down, beaten down, beaten up people. You weren't better off back there. But but the but the passing of time had changed their view of God, and all of a sudden they're mad. What would you have done if it had been you? You know, there's really, I think, three basic views of God that people have. See which one of these you fit into. On the one hand, you have people say, God is for me. God is for me. And in times of trouble, what do they say? God is for me. Why is this happening? God, you're supposed to be for me. Why are you letting this happen? God, you're on my side. On the other end, there's people who say, God is against me. God's against me. See, I told you so. You know why things are going bad in my life right now? Because God's against me. I've been telling you that for a long time. You don't know, oh, no, God's for you. No, God's against me. See, God's against me. That's why bad stuff is happening. And then right in the middle, there's this third group of people who just say, God's apathetic. <laughs> he doesn't even care. He doesn't even care. Sometimes we go back and forth between those, don't we? But you know what? Maybe you've been in church long enough to know the right thing to say. Don't, don't we, you know, we've been in church for a while. We learn the church language. We learn the right way to talk. And they're like, oh yeah, God's for me. I'm just going to trust Him. We're, we're like Job in Job chapter 2. God gives. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And then with the passing of time, we become like Job later on, who says, God, where are you? Oh, that there was somebody who could reach out and touch both of us. Oh, there was somebody who could who could put one hand here and one hand here and bring us together. God, why aren't you answering my questions? And and as Job progresses, Job gets a little a little mouthy with God. And then in the end of Job in chapter thirty eight, God actually shows up. And and God's words to Job start with, with this. Hey, Job, brace yourself. You know, if you have a you know, new American uh, gird up your loins like a man. Hey, brace yourself. Hang on, because I'm going to ask you a few questions now. You've been asking me questions all this time. I'm going to ask you a few questions. And what begins is a series of questions that is designed to make Job feel this high. Job, where were you when I created the world? Did you ever cause the sun to come up? Did you you ever cause the the sea? Did you ever say to the sea, this is how far you can come and no farther? Ever? Did you ever cause it to rain? Did you ever cause it to snow? And on and on and on, God asked Job questions. And and then at one point, Job Job says, uh, okay, God, you got me. You got me. I repent. And God said, no, no, no. I'm not done yet, Job. we got some more work to do. And God goes after him again. You see, in times of trial in our lives, who are we like? I mean, when the Israelites leave Egypt, they're, they're, they're bold, they're happy, they're celebrating, they're joyful. When Job initially enters into trial, he's okay. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good from Him, Lord, and not, not the evil also? But for both of them, as time goes on, their tr- beliefs about God change a little bit. Moses says to the people, Do not fear. Do not fear. I, I, you know, here, here's Moses the father. Moses, the loving father who steps in and says, Listen, guys, don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians whom you've seen today, you'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This whole stand by doesn't mean just stand there and do nothing. It means just be firm in your faith. Keep believing. Trust God. Trust His promises. Do not fear because there's something bigger and greater and more powerful than you. And something bigger and greater and more powerful than the Egyptians. God will take care of it. So God says to Moses, stand up, stretch your staff out. And the water splits. And the Israelites, two million of them. Imagine, I mean, that's hard to fathom, isn't it? Two million walk across on dry, dry ground. And the Egyptians... They're like, well, let's go get them. Let's go. And they charge into the sea. A lot of people have uh, you know, said, well, well, this was a marsh. It wasn't really a, a deep sea. Now, I think it was a deep sea, and I'll tell you why. Because when Egypt charges in, they get out in the middle. And, and, and then God 
starts to close the sea back up. And I imagine the way it's, the way it's put here in, um, in verse number uh, 23, the Egyptians took up pursuit. At the morning watch, verse 24, the Lord looked down on the army of Egyptians through the pillar of cloud and the fire and brought the army and the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and He made them drive with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting against them, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back over the Egyptians and over their chariots and horsemen. Guys, you can't do that in a marsh. There's not enough water. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. They were fleeing right into it. Now, Now get this picture because they have chased them into the middle and then, and then everything starts going haywire for them. And they go, well, this, this has got to be God. We've got to turn around. We've got to get out of here. And they turn around, and the water has started at the shore to close back in. And they're running to the shore. means they are fleeing into the water. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after him. Not one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked through on dry land. You got that? God delivered His people. Thus, verse number 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. As they're camped there, not at Pihaharoth anymore, but now on the other side, as they set up camp that morning and begin to light their fires to cook their food, those closest to the shore start seeing these bodies float up. And those bodies are dead because of the power of God to deliver His people. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, it, people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. God used His power to destroy the enemies of His people and to deliver His people. Now let me ask you a question. Was this the easiest way? If you read this story and you understand what's going on here, you see God did not take the easiest way. In fact, God specifically took them away from the easiest way. Now think about the irony here. Because God says, I know if they go the way of the, of the road of the Philistines, that, that straight across, I know if they go that way they're going to see war. So I'm going to take them down where they're going to see the Egyptians. Doesn't that sound a little funny? Doesn't that sound a little strange? It should. I don't want them to see war, so I'll take them down where they'll see the Egyptian army coming after them. And what we see is, is the love of God the Father who says, I know what my children can handle. And we should expect that from a loving Father. But then we also see the God who is in pursuit of His own glory who says, I want all the world to know my name. Verse number, chapter 14, verse 4. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his armies, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Over and over again in the story, in this first part of Exodus, God says they will know that I am the Lord. I am doing this so they may know. You see, folks, God is in pursuit of His own fame. God is not in pursuit of our comfort. God is not in pursuit of our ease. God is not in pursuit of us having a better life now. God's in pursuit of making His name known around the world. 
how often it is that our temptation is to judge God's love and God's concern for us on the basis of what we see immediately in front of us. How often we are tempted to question God and say, God, if you loved me, wouldn't you be doing this different right now? God, if you loved me, wouldn't you let me go by the way of the road of the sea? By the way of the land of the Philistines? Because, that, God, that was the easiest way. And you got me down here wherever here is for you. And, and make no mistake about it, okay? Uh, you don't have an Egypt, all right? You don't have an Egypt. Egypt was a piece of real estate. And, and, and there, there's nothing, this text is not about God parting the waters of your life or the waters of your health or the waters of your bank account or the waters of your marriage and helping you escape. That's not what this is about. Okay? What this is about is God's pursuit of His fame through the destruction of His enemies and the deliverance of His people. And you know what? Some of you are scared to death of God and His leadership. You're scared that God's not watching out for you. You're scared that God is bringing things into your life that you can't handle. To that, I would remind you that God led His people away from a situation that would demoralize them. He led them away from the situation they could not handle. He's not willing to lead us places we can't handle, that we're not ready for. And by the way, don't we all know this? We have children. And, and we understand that our job is to raise children. And, and in so doing, we gradually add responsibility to their lives. Right? I have a one-year-old. I, I said that, right? And you know what my one-year-old does? Nothing. Except, well, you know. Nothing. I haven't asked him to mow the lawn yet. I'm going to already ask my seven-year-old this time. We understand that, don't we? We don't put more on our children than they can handle. We might make mistakes sometimes. We might think they're a little farther along than they are. And, and right? You know, the God who knows all things is not willing to put more on you than you can handle. He's just not going to do it. He knows our frame. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. He knows our frame that we're but dust. God hasn't given you something you can't handle. But God, in the pursuit of His glory, may lead you into situations that you wish didn't exist. He may lead you into places that you wish were different. See, you have a sentimental view of God. As, as one who believes that God would never leave His children in difficulty. You're like the child who claims Dad is mean because he makes him pick up his room or, or go to bed. Oh, you're mean to me. Not yet. But that's what kids say. We have a sentimental view of God. We have, we have subtly bought into really what's a prosperity theology. God loved me. He'd fix this. God, I believe in you. Why aren't you doing better? God, I believe in you. Why haven't you taken this away yet? That's prosperity theology. That's the belief that, hey, if I just have Jesus, everything gets better. And here's what I want to tell you. Um, you know what they did to Jesus? You remember that, right? They killed Him. Why do you think it would be different? 
Why do we think it would be different for us? Jesus said, hey, if they did this to the Lord, what do you think they're going to do to His disciples? But you know what? It is enough for the disciple that he, that he be like His teacher. And if Jesus is our Master and Jesus is our teacher, it's enough for us to embrace the possibility, the probability, and not everything in life is going to be roses and popcorn. There's going to be some hard days. There's going to be some times camping between Pihaharoth and the sea. There's going to be some days God, for the pursuit of His own fame and for the pursuit of His own glory, is going to put us in some situations we wish we weren't in. And in those days, what will you do? Why did you bring us here? We could have died in Egypt. We got plenty of cemeteries back there. We could have done better than this over there. Israel never knew the road not taken. They didn't know what awaited them on the road of the land of the Philistines. They only knew the road they took. But God said, trust me. Trust me. And so I say to us tonight, trust Him. We can rest in the sovereign plan of a loving God who has committed Himself to us in Jesus. And He has promised us that He works all things after the counsel's own will. And that means the roads we take and the roads we don't take are for our good and for His glory. An old song written in the 1600s written by a man named Samuel Rodegast. He wrote this song for a friend of his who was sick to encourage him in the Lord. The song says, Whate'er my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er He doth and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know He will not leave me. I take content what He hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait His day. His hand can turn my griefs away. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup I'm drinking may, seem, may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all in shrinking. My God is true. Each morn is new. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. And pain and sorrow shall depart. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. When Israel was camped between Pahaharoth and the sea, they needed to rest in the loving hand of the Father who ordains all that is right and governs it for His own purposes. Said Samuel Rodegast wrote this for a sick friend. I don't know what happened to his friend. I don't know if he got better. I don't know if he died. But here's what I know is 340 years later, he's dead. Even if he got better, in the providence and sovereignty of God, even if he got better, death still came. 
And the hope that we have is not the hope that this life is going to be better, not the hope that we can figure it all out and have a nice, rosy, peaceful life. The hope is that one day there's a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. And sorrow and pain and tears and death have passed away. And God wipes every tear from our eyes. And He destroys the old things and He says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And that's the day we look for. Listen, the road that God takes us on may be a road of relative comfort. It may be a road of sorrow. But it will be a road where we can be sure that God will not abandon us and God will pursue His own glory. And that will be for our good. Some of you, maybe you're here tonight and you say, you know, I'm not sure I can trust God. Maybe, maybe you're at the state in your life where you're just you're searching out. Maybe you're relatively new. Or maybe you've been in church for a long time, and, but, but you sit here week after week and you say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite there. I want to, I'm not quite there. I don't know if I can trust God. Your road that God has ordained you to have brought you here tonight to confront you with His love for the road not taken and His power on the road they did take. He is pursuing it for us and for Himself. Perhaps you're here tonight and your faith is weak in the midst of sickness or difficulty or or jobs or, or family. I don't know what it is for you, but you're tempted to say, God, I'm following you. Why aren't you helping me? Or, God, I knew you didn't care. Or, see, I told you so. Let me encourage you tonight to come back to rest and trust in the God who does all things right. He loves us and He's pursuing His own glory. And just as He did not abandon Israel by the sea, so He will not abandon us. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we we pray, believing that You have committed Yourself to us in Jesus and You having delivered over Your own Son for us, how will You not with Him freely give us all things? As with Israel of old, you will not abandon us in the wilderness. You will not abandon us in sorrow. Though you may lead us through times of difficulty and times of conflict and times of of trial, you will not abandon us there. You will stay with us. You will pursue your own glory and you will bring us out on the other side for our good. May we trust in you as a loving Father, as a glorious God. May we rest in your sovereignty believing that You do all things that are right. Give us faith. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.